Parenthood is a time of so much change for you and your baby. A little reliable information can go a long way towards making this new life a good life. I'm Jessica Rolfe, and this is My New Life, a Love Every Podcast. My family and I spent last weekend camping in the mountains in Idaho. One of my favorite things about being in the outdoors is watching my kids create fantasy worlds amongst the trees. Sticks become wands, branches transform into shelters, and hours can pass foraging for just the right potion ingredients. It's imaginative play at its most elemental. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you know how important play is to your child's development. But why? What is happening to our brains when we play? And how does it help prepare our young children for success later in life? For answers to these questions, I am joined by Harvard-trained psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and best-selling author, Dr. Shimmy Kang. She is the author of The Dolphin Parent, a guide to raising healthy, happy, and self-motivated kids. In her newest book, The Tech Solution, creating healthy habits for kids growing up in a digital world. Hi, Shimmy. It's so great to have you here. Hi, Jessica. So you are the daughter of immigrant parents. How did your upbringing inform your work around play? Well, my parents, they're very interesting parents. They were both hardworking immigrants. My mom actually couldn't read. She's illiterate. So she was very hands-off, I guess, with school. She couldn't micromanage my homework, of course, but she always sent the message that, you know, to work hard and explore the environment. You know, as immigrants, I think they were into exploration. And I think that really helped inform my play, my learning through trial and error, my having unstructured free time. I wasn't in a single extracurricular activity. We couldn't afford it. It wasn't just part of what we were doing. And so that gave me this openness to really like explore my environment, what was in my home, what was in my backyard. And my dad actually used to drive taxi and he studied to become a math teacher. And we used to practice math in the front seat of his taxi cab and look at the money and the meter and the change and the miles and do calculations. But he made it always a game. He made it fun. He taught the five of us how to add, subtract, understand prime numbers and square roots by having us hop on our you know left leg and right leg and do all kinds of calculations. And it was kind of the way, you know, they, they did it out of necessity. But I think as I got older and really looked into the research and neuroscience of what's happening in childhood, I really appreciated that firm, I would say, that childhood that had firmness and rules and expectations, but also a lot of flexibility. That's what I call the dolphin parenting style. I'd love to hear more about that. So can you specifically help us understand like why play is such an important piece of childhood from the research perspective? Right. So play is one of my favorite topics. It's actually very sophisticated. There's a whole science behind play. There's seven different types of play and each activate a different part of our brain to develop very important life skills. And ultimately, play develops an area of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. So that that's the part of the brain responsible for abstract thinking, learning from trial and error, being comfortable with uncertainty, innovating, emotional regulation, planning, all a lot of these really important tasks. So 
When we really look at the specifics of the neuroscience of play, we know that the seven different types are rough and tumble play and body movement play. And if we kind of put those in a little category, you know, with toddlers, it's really allowing them to explore their bodies in space, move around, uh, twirl, do somersaults. And I know that drives a lot of parents crazy. It drove me crazy when I had little toddlers, but it is so important for them to be able to do this. And a quick story I like to tell is when my two older sons were wrestling, you know, they were only 22 months apart. So one was probably two and the other one was close to four. And I found it a bit barbaric. And I was always wondering, why are they doing this in restaurants? And But then when you look closely, it looked like they were lit up with joy, you know, from the inside, and they rarely hurt each other. And that type of play, that push and pull of the physical body activates the cerebellum, which is our social centers, and it teaches children the push and pull of the social body. And kids who have rough and tumble play and in fact wrestle are less likely to bully and less likely to be bullied. They're more able to assert themselves and know how far to go, including in social conversations. So, you know, the science is so rich. There's object play, meaning playing with our hands. Our hands evolved the same time as the brain. We have 60,000 sensory receptors. Our hands are very intelligent. So that allows cognitive tasks or thinking, problem solving. So young kids who are stuck on a problem, even as adults, you know, we knit, we garden, we even do the dishes and we come up with ideas. There's imaginary play, which is my favorite type of play, which is really connecting different parts of the brain. There's a direct pathway there to innovation. There's social play and attunement play, including looking into each other's eyes, which toddlers love. They grab their parents' face and they want to look at you. That's a form of play as well. So it's really endless science. It's it's wonderful to look into this. And I say it's a gift nature has given to us. We are absolutely hardwired to play. All animals in nature play. Dolphins, you know, which I love to talk about, are very sophisticated animals. And the only way they survive in that very dangerous ocean is they make it a priority to play every day. And they allow their children to play. They form circles, you know, around so their children can play without worrying about sharks. And I think when we look at nature, we can understand our own biology better. And there was a study that you referenced that as a rat study about play. Can you tell us more about that? Right. Yeah. So the scientists at the National Institute of Health took two groups of rats and one, they allowed, you know, a normal rat childhood and they had toys and they let them wrestle and jostle. And the other group, they prevented any kind of play behavior and they took a collar of a cat, which was something that the rats would find dangerous and they put them in both of their environments. And so all the smart rats ran into a hole because they sense danger, which makes sense. And then what happened was really fascinating. The rats that were allowed to play slowly moved out of the hole. They sniffed around, they went in and out, and they were able to adapt to this sudden change. And they went and lived a happy rat life. And the other group actually died in the hole. They were unable to solve the problem that they were faced with. They couldn't adapt. And I think that that scientific experiments really shows us the power of play. Wow. That is so fascinating. And so then how does play specifically acting out like these different scenarios or skills help children adapt to stress and emotionally process new things? 
Right. Well, stress is really, you know, a neurohormone, let's say, of cortisol, which is so not just bad for our mental health, but uh, for our physical health. And we know toddlers are exhibiting higher levels of cortisol and stress, uh, and it's very concerning in childhood. And so one of the best anecdotes of that is play, because play releases the opposite in the sense it releases neurochemicals called serotonin. So when children discover new things and make in inventions and creations. They get a little hit of serotonin. When they play together, playing tag or hide and seek or peekaboo, they get oxytocin, which is our neurohormone of love and bonding and trust. And it actually grows our brain cells. It's called neurogenesis. And when they have imaginary play or they get into flow states, if you've ever seen a toddler playing with dirt or bubbles or, you know, a blade of grass even. They're looking intently. It's like a form of mindfulness that gives them endorphin. And all of these very powerful neurochemicals come directly from those play experiences. They will help toddlers manage stress and also really grow and activate those important parts of their brains. I had no idea there was a hormonal response to play that is fascinating. So then can you get into the difference between free play and guided play and why parents might want to emphasize one kind of type over the other? Right. Yeah. So all play is great, but play has changed over the years. And I like to give the story of Lego to really explain free play and unstructured play. The Lego of my time when I was a childhood was probably similar to a lot of parents. It was unstructured. It was a bunch of bricks. I was the youngest of five. Mine were always chewed up and broken, but it allowed me to be the leader of the play. The result were unlimited. I could build what I want. It was very creative and there was never a mistake. And that is the kind of childhood a lot of us experienced. And it really leads to more resilience and innovation later on. Today's Lego, I say, is a lot like today's childhood, highly structured, full of rules, and there's an end product. You know, the Lego has a picture of what you're supposed to create and a manual that goes with it. That's not really the superfood of play that we want. That leads kids to be more followers, more perfectionistic, and we are seeing high rates of perfectionism and rigid thinking, which are tied to anxiety. So, you know, there is different types of play. And what we want is divergent, unstructured play, freedom to really explore, of course, keeping them safe and less of the structured play, which we often see in a lot of activities. So uh, you really definitely want to favor the free form play. Yeah, I remember realizing that, that there's this inductive versus kind of deductive thinking. And, you know, we really want our children to be creative. And so it's so helpful to hear you talk about that in the context of of toys and materials. One of your focal points of your research is, is not overscheduling your child, like figuring out how to have balance, you know, without too many activities. What does that look like for a toddler? Right. Well, toddlers really don't need structured activities. You know, I think that when we look at the whole point of structured activities, we're trying to teach a specific skill, you know, whether it's piano or, you know, soccer or math. But, you know, the developmental phase of toddlers is for them to really explore their environment, get some what we call emotional regulation, meaning being able to manage their emotions and have a sense of social skills. Those 
are really important developmental milestones for toddlers. And so when we look at what toddlers need to do, it's what they naturally want to do. They don't want to be (laughs) kind of driven around and in structured activities. They like to explore. They like to make a mess. They like to do all kinds of things with their bodies. And um, they like to make friends too. And so a lot of, I say for parents of this age is the most important parenting thing you know you want to do is in some ways stay out of the way of nature keep your child safe of course you know don't be what i call a jellyfish and permissive parent that has no rules or guidance or expectations, but don't be a helicopter and micromanage and overschedule. We actually even know toddlers are sleep deprived because they're too busy, which is such a paradox. And and I say parents who are doing this are, you know, coming from a place of love, but they're doing all the wrong things for the right reason. Of course, we don't want to judge each other, but we also want to make sure that we follow the science and what works best for our children. And then what are the signs? How can we tell if our toddlers are overstimulated or overwhelmed? And did you ever deal with this like yourself as a parent? Yes, definitely. So I have three children and they're a bit older now, but my oldest son, he was a really cranky toddler. He didn't eat very much. He was a lot of work, I think. And, but I also think it reflected my own anxiety. You know, I wasn't sure what to do and I was doing what everyone else was doing and everyone else was driving their, you know, toddlers around and all these activities and stimulating them and reading, you know, flashcards and books or whatever the latest rage was. And, and that is, was a real turning point because I thought of what I was doing and how I grew up. And I realized that, wow, I had forgotten the simple things, you know, the routine, regular sleep, just routine, regular movement of your body, social connection and play. These are the basics, fundamental building blocks of the human brain during these toddler ages. And it really shocked me that despite all my knowledge, you know, all the Harvard training and motivation and child psychiatry, it was so easy to fall into this trap that I feel is a part of modern day parenting. And thankfully, I remembered my own mom, you know, who always said that none of that made any sense. And she used to say common sense has become uncommon practice. And it helped me go back to my intuition and realize when you don't pair it from a place of fear, you'll make better choices. And when parents themselves take care of themselves, things will become a lot more clear. And now you'll parent from intuition. Oh, that is so true. It is so hard to take care of ourselves, but it is the foundation. And then for our toddlers, how much do we be involved in their play? Like there's this talk of independent play and like how much should we be getting down on the floor with our children or should we actually be stepping back more? I think let your child guide you. The human brain is like a fingerprint in the sense of each child's brain is unique. Some are going to want social play more. And, you know, if they're tugging at you, you know, while you're, you know, on your laptop or cooking dinner, you know, that's a signal that they want to engage in social play. But, you know, if they're playing quietly and you come in and they look like, you know, embarrassed or shy, they want to play with their imaginary friends. Uh, So I think let them guide you check in with them and ask them, you know, do you want to play with mommy or is it a good time? And they'll let you know. I find that my toddler and my like four and five-year-olds like really want to have me help them kind of scaffold that imaginative play. Like, like I'll say, let's pretend, and then we'll really build on that story or the scenarios together. Is that something 
that is helpful for them? Like, do they need, do they need us to help expand their ability to, to, you know, kind of engage in pretend play? Or is it something that's more innate in them? And, you know, we don't actually need to be so involved. Yeah, I think it really, it's always good to guide and try, but if they don't seem to need you, then let them be because, you know, their brains are really unique and we know there's something called play personalities, meaning some kids are more likely to gravitate towards, let's say, collecting play, which, you know, they might collect rocks or rough and tumble play or a joker. They like to, you know, have pranks or the director who likes to organize everything. So we do have a unique personality of play that um, might be different between parent and child or among siblings. So you want to respect that and allow them to explore their own style of play and then bring in different types of play to see how they respond. Something like imaginary play and imaginary friends, it's almost like I say it's very sacred. It's very meditative, some parts of play. And that is something they often want to do alone. And it's a very time to be intimate with yourself. It's a time of self-reflection. And so if you see your child playing alone and they're happy, let it be and just enjoy it. Yeah. My daughter will sometimes be like, stop mama. You know, she's talking and talking to herself and playing. And I'm just kind of like quietly observing or kind of wanting to, you know, engage with her a little bit. And she's just like, no mom, like I am having my own play meditation over here. So I love having words for that now. Do you have any tips for parents who are just struggling to kind of make this shift of just this more time for free play, more like any suggestions that you have for families? I think the biggest one is try to get your fear out of the way. You know, one of the things I've observed that interferes with children's play is just our own parental fear. And it's, it is scary. Like, you know, what if they get hit by a car if they're out in their front yard? You know, what if they fall down or hurt themselves if they go up the slide? Or, you know, what if that child is mean to them? And so all of these things worry us. And then we intervene too often and too soon, or we overschedule them and put them in an activity because we're scared that they're not being stimulated. And so trust human nature. They need social contact. So family dinners and family time, super important. Many need naps and they need time in nature. Of course, that's uh, humans, I say, are biophilic. We love nature and we need to be out seeing sunlight and the color green and they need exercise and body movement. Other than that, if you your child isn't free playing enough, they might just be that they're too busy or they're too structured. So really look at their schedules and see where can I free up some time for them. I feel like you just helped me take a breath of fresh air with that. So do you have any tips on kind of self-care and our parent relationship with technology? Your new book is about tech. And I would love to hear kind of like technology as it relates to parents and how hard it is to kind of be mindful of technology and how it is impacting our relationship with our children. Do you have any thoughts on that? for us. Right. Yeah. Well, I think parenting is, you know, no doubt stressful, right? We're juggling so much. And one thing technology has done is it kind of has become a coping mechanism for stress, right? So when we think of the stress response, there's something called freeze, fight, or flight. Well, our freeze is anxiety and control, and we over-control our kids. Fight is irritability and anger. And I certainly get pretty irritable in my parenting moments. 
And then the flight is distraction or avoidance. And that's where tech comes in. And we distract ourselves with our phones. We check social media. uh, We go online shopping, you know, whatever it might be. And that has become a coping skill for a lot of parents. And I think that's step one is to recognize what is your relationship with technology like? And then step two is try to commit to use technology for three things. I say to care, to connect, and to create. And what that means, use technology for self-care. Count your steps on a Fitbit or check your sleep, do meditation, mindfulness, your blood pressure, whatever it is. Tech is great for self-care. Connect with others in a meaningful way in terms of forming relationships. And socializing and social likes is not so social bonding, and create. Use tech to be creative. Explore your own passions and interests, uh, because that's very important for parents to show that and role model that for young children. So if you follow that, then our relationship with tech will become healthier and less of the addictive, stressful tech that many of us are doing. I just wrote that down. So that will guide me. (laughs) Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. Shimmy, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Jessica, for all the great work that you're doing for families all over. As someone who slips easily into director mode with my kids' play, I can never be reminded enough how important free play is and why it matters. Takeaway number one. Look for toys that are less structured with few rules. All of our products at Lovevery are designed with this in mind. These kinds of open-ended toys allow freedom to explore and discover outcomes that are uniquely theirs. Free play encourages creativity and de-emphasizes perfection. Takeaway number two, micromanaging and overscheduling can have a negative impact on our kids. Make space for downtime overturning stones in the yard, or exploring safe cupboards in the house. Unstructured play develops the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for abstract thinking, learning from trial and error, being comfortable with uncertainty, innovating emotional regulation, and planning. Takeaway number three, engage your kids in rough and tumble play. We all know they naturally crave it. What is interesting to know is that physical play, that push and pull of the body, activates the cerebellum, the social part of the brain. You can find all kinds of playful ways to engage with your baby and toddler on the Love Every blog at loveevery.com. You've been listening to My New Life. If you think this episode might be helpful to a fellow parent, please share. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, head over to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. I'm Jessica Rolfe. Thanks for listening. Thank you.